Bitte verlassen Sie meine Stadt. Verlaat meine Stadt, alsjeblieft. Verpiss dich aus meiner Stadt, du Vollspacken. Rechts, Maigelmeister. Por favor, deixe minha cidade. Wilt u alsjeblieft mijn stad verlaten? Per favore, lascia la mia città. Nog nach feng, suwei mei. Hello, welcome to Romaniacs. That was the sound of Boris Johnson being told to please leave my town in several European languages. <laughs> Thanks for all the recordings you sent in via Twitter. Sorry you couldn't use all of them, but there will be more later in the show. I'm Dorian Linsky and I have a bumper pack of three regulars with me to discuss Parliament's dramatic season finale. Ian Dunt is editor of politics.co.uk and king of the rolling Twitter thread. Ian, when did you get to bed on Monday? Too early, man. I quit too early. I went to <laughs> you bed. Like, no, you know how you know that you quit too early is you get a DM at like 3am from Alex going, Why are you looking you at me? the best bit. <laughs> and I'm like, oh shit. It's the first thing I saw in the morning. I was like, damn you. <laughs> and so I went to bed at like, I think like 1.20 because I was like, oh, prorogation, it's all ceremonial. And I do politics. I don't do the ceremony bit. And then of course I wake up and, you know, someone's like, there's been scuffles in the chamber. I'm like, I've been Placards. watching the chamber for 12 years. I haven't seen any scuffles. And 20 minutes after I go to bed, I for 12 years continuously. <laughs> pretty, pretty much entirely. Yeah. Ingrid Oliver is an actor, writer, director and part-time Tory entryist. She joins... <laughs> all the other decent Tories leave. Hi, Ingrid. Are the party emails uh, skirting the issue of uh, eliminating the majority um, or and focusing on fundraisers in Penge? Um, actually, Dorian, I have an announcement to make. Um, after much soul-searching... <gasps> I have decided that a party that doesn't have a space for the likes of Dominic Grieve and Rory Stewart is no longer a party for me. <laughs> um, uh, and it's therefore with a, with a heavy heart that I'm hereby renouncing my membership of the Conservative oh. Unionist Party uh, immediately. Also, I don't hang out with Crims, so um, I, I had to draw the line somewhere. It's been quite a ride, isn't it? It has been. You get a, a slim ride. book out of that. Yeah, I mean, my God. Yeah, I was going to bring my uh, my membership card in and cut it ostentatiously on air, but I've forgotten scissors, so I can't uh-huh. do that. Um, but I, yeah, I woke up this morning. I was like, okay, joke's a joke. It's gone far enough now. They're actually criminals. I'm not gonna. I don't. I don't want to be a member of the party anymore. So there we go. It was worth. Their loss. It was all worth it for for the for the gags. It was great for us, yeah. to be honest. Exactly. Like, we yeah. enjoyed Which it is the only bit. reason I did it in the first place, just to reiterate. Alex Andreo is the most prolific Renaissance man since the actual Renaissance, and he's been one of Twitter's most essential commentators over this past week. Hi, Alex. Hello, Dorian. Um, so do you agree with this argument that, that pro-roguing and all this no-deal brinksmanship, um, which is meant to be... Uh, the great plan of Megamind Dominic Cummings has backfired horribly by uniting all the opposition MPs against him at last. Agree with it. I wrote it. <laughs> I wrote it. Did you actually write that? <laughs> two weeks ago. I just yeah, thought no. some clever man on Twitter no, wrote it. it okay. Listen, it was a strategic disaster for them. And and I'm I'm delighted to say I told you so because you may remember that two, three weeks ago, we were all in this studio and shoulders were down, you know, and that was across the the entire Remain movement. People were feeling really glum. They were feeling they were being bulldozed and there was nothing we could do about it. And then suddenly he turns around and starts overreaching like that. And he's energised the entire Remain movement again, united his opponents, uh, made, you know, lost his majority. I mean, it's a disaster. It's magic. 
Our special guest this week is Bridget Philipson, elected as Labour MP for Houghton and Sunderland South in 2010 at the age of just 26. She's been a Labour whip, a member of several committees and an ardent Remainer. Hello, Bridget. Welcome to Romaniacs. Good to be with you. Thanks for coming in. Um, so this is the, the time off that opposition MPs never wanted. Um, how are you, apart from doing podcasts, um, how, how best to sort of effectively use this time when actually you'd rather be in, in the chamber? I mean, this is a funny week because we thought Parliament would be sitting this week so there were lots of committees that were due to meet and there were lots of opportunities to hold the government to account and that's fallen by the wayside. On the plus side, it means that I'm not having to worry about dashing off to a vote. I was a bit concerned this afternoon that there might have been some business in the Commons Chamber, so every uh, every cloud. Um, but it is, I think, you know, for all of those MPs that want to be holding the government to account, we want to be making the argument there would be ample opportunities to do all of that and that's been taken away from us. I mean, recess broadly is a chance to catch up with a lot of the things we haven't had the time to do. And the problem with Brexit for MPs and amongst many other problems that exist with Brexit is it's just sucked so much time and energy out of all of the other things that we want to concentrate on and focus on and all the problems that we see in our communities. So whether it's the rise in food banks or the problems that I see with so so many people around universal credit, it just takes time out of sorting all of that out. So getting onto that, for all this is not what we would want isn't a bad thing for MPs either. Well, before we started recording, Scottish Appeal Court judges ruled the suspension of Parliament was illegal, contradicting a ruling by English judges last week. Uh, The case now goes to the Supreme Court next week. Um... So could Parliament be be unrecalled? Are you are you sort of ready to deprorogue? <laughs> Which I believe is the technical word. Well, I don't think anybody really knows what on earth is going on, which has been the case, I think, for, for many weeks um, generally. It's not clear what will happen. I think the government have indicated that they intend to appeal this decision to the Supreme Court next week. Um, but as things stand, I think there will be there will be a lot of pressure to get Parliament back. We never should have been prorogued in the first place. It was a deliberate attempt to curtail debate, scrutiny, to stop us holding the government to account for what they intend to do. And I think there will be a lot of pressure now for that decision to be reversed. And um, what was the what was the chamber like on Monday? What was the um, what was the vibe in the room? <laughs> so I've had a, a funny couple of weeks in that I've been quite unwell. So during the time at which this was all happening, I was actually in hospital. So I was watching it from a distance as much as anybody else. I wasn't quite sure when I first took ill when I woke up whether it was just the bad kind of feverish nightmares I was having <laughs> or, or the heavy duty painkillers I was taking. But when prorogation kind of was announced and it was clear it was going to happen, so I've you know, been watching much of this like everybody else from a bit of a distance, which in a sense hasn't been a bad thing. I think mm. it is a genuinely worrying time for our democracy, for all of the institutions that we value and that we've taken for granted for so long. And I think if ever there were a time for Parliament to assert itself against an overmighty executive, now's the time. So would you have been would you have been throwing yourself in front of the speaker, <laughs> given the opportunity? <laughs> not not really my style. I would I would have liked to have been a bit, I would like to have been a bit more involved in what was going on. Yeah. Um, absolutely. I mean, at first I was too sick to really fully care what was going on, and then I knew I was getting better when I was starting to be really frustrated that I wasn't in Parliament, <laughs> yeah. being able to sh- be able to shout at Boris Johnson and and make the case. But um, I think there will be there will be a lot happening in, in the weeks ahead. Yeah, sure. As well as the inevitable look at the latest episode of Don Breaks the Constitution, we'll be looking at the future of the Tory party if he and Johnson get their way. But first, a couple of reminders from Ingrid. 
If you're going to the Lib Dem conference in Bournemouth or you're just hanging around the South Coast this weekend, we're doing a short-notice Mini Romaniacs Live on Sunday the 15th at 4pm. Regulars Dorian, Ros Taylor and Naomi Smith will be joined by special guest and newly minted Lib Dem MP Sarah Wollaston for a compact 50-minute chat on whatever has happened by Sunday. A general election, prime ministerial resignation, alien invasion, plus the future of the Lib Dems and much more. It's at Bar S.O., is that standing order 24? No, just bar SO <laughs> on Exeter Road outside the conference perimeter. So you don't need to be a delegate to get in. Because it's a miniature no frills version of our live show, admission is free. Just go to the Romaniacs uh, Twitter page to book your ticket. And if you're going to the Remainer Now conference takeover at the Best Western Hotel at 5pm, don't worry, we'll be finished in time for you to get there. And if you want the all frills version of our live show, don't forget Democalypse 2019 Part 2 at 9pm on Monday the 20th. 23rd of September with special guest Mark Gatiss. The lineup is confirmed as Mark plus Alex Andreu and Ros Taylor with producer Andrew Harrison hosting. I'll be doing the sold out 7pm show with James O'Brien, Dorian and Ian Dunt. Tickets for the 9pm show are going fast at leicestersquaretheatre.com. Get yours before Boris Johnson prorogues it. Thanks Ingrid. Uh, let's dive into the news. So first up, Johnson predictably failed to get his election, thus losing all six of his first six votes, which is pretty damn impressive. <laughs> um, Ian, there was like there was so much happening, some of which you missed because you were asleep and shirking your duties. Um, Fucking hell. Um, like apart from all the kind of drama of the moment, like what what was what was the most sort of uh, significant events of the day? Oh, it's obviously it's Burko. It's just Burko resigning, which. You know, at first, as soon as he says it, you're like, oh, fuck. Like, I just sort of felt this, this sort of droop because it's thought, really, th- this whole thing, he has been the avenue through which lots of the resistance in Parliament has been able to go. If you'd had someone that was a more conservative speaker, um, it's quite possible they would have basically allowed the government to get away with an awful lot more. So I'm thinking of the amendment that he selected from Dominic Grieve right at the beginning of the year, um, stopping Theresa May from putting forward her deal over and over again, which at least forced her to be a bit more cautious in how that went forward, and especially the use of standing order 24 um, emergency debates. And if it wasn't for that, I do think you know Dominic Cummings and Boris Johnson especially would have got their way. So it was quite despairing. He did it with this incredible, really quite, I mean... He was off the leash, man. Like, once he made that resignation, I mean, the speech was extremely pointed. And then his commentary, I mean, you know, within half an hour, he was talking about journal- like right-wing journalists writing for, like, grubby newspapers. I was like, OK, all right, so he's he's going to gun for it I now. liked her, I don't give a flying flamingo what you think. <laughs> it was genuinely fantastic. That was a good comeback. And, but then, of course, what the, the crucial part of that was that he made sure that the vote for his successor would be this parliament. So you would have it when there's a minority government and you would have it when I think MPs are sort of as radicalised, if I can use that word, as, as they could be at any point. Certainly, I think, more so than they would be in the next parliament. So all in all, I mean, he, he'd laid it out as best as he could. But that right there, in terms of a structural change to the way that Brexit proceeds, was the biggest moment. So what do you think... Is there any way of knowing, you know, who's going to be the next speaker and how they might regard... No, it's quite good. It's not usually the way that you think it's going to go, to be honest, with these things. It's quite it's quite hard to balance. I mean, I, I, I'm sort of hoping it's Harriet Harman, to be honest. Like, I, I suspect that she's the one that would follow that to its conclusion. But it's, it's a bit of a mugs game trying to predict which way that one will go. Um, Bridget, what is John Burko's sort of legacy? What's your experience of him as speaker? Because he has been a great defender of, of sort of of parliamentary procedure and of standing up for MPs against the executive. Um, also, there was this cloud hanging over him of bullying allegations. Um, 
how do how do you sort of regard him as somebody you know when you were in the chamber as somebody to sort of to deal with and his general reputation? So he's always been a champion of backbenchers and from the moment I arrived in 2010 it was always clear that if you know he would do his very best to accommodate as many people as he could if you want to ask a question if you want to speak in debates he would do you know everything within his power to get as many people in and I think the innovations around urgent questions in particular have meant that parliament is more relevant that we debate issues that are you know, very much at the fore of, of kind of the public's mind in a way that I don't think happened in the past. So, it, you know, he has seen kind of big innovations. And I would say on a personal level, a lot of the changes that have been made around the way in which Parliament operates in terms of the hours and the facilities that are available, it's much better than it used to be. You know, it had improved a lot when I arrived in 2010. But, you know, we also saw the innovation of a nursery being opened um, in the Commons, which is available for staff and for MPs. That was really important for me. It's made a big difference, you know, having children while serving as an MP to have that kind of um, facility available and the hours have changed. So, you know, I think there's a lot of praise, um, you know, to go John Burkle's way on that. I mean, I think there are, frankly, unanswered questions around um, some issues around his conduct. And it would be remiss of me not to mention them because mm. I think they will cloud what should otherwise have been a period of real reform in Parliament where John Burko has been at the forefront of that. Ingrid, he didn't get his election. Uh, the Tories tried to goad Corbyn with an excruciating chicken pun, like uh, like Biff trying to wind up Marty McFly. Um, <laughs> this obviously failed because Jeremy Corbyn is not Marty McFly. Um, but do you think the message has any traction with the with the public that people are thinking, well, come on, what's what's Labour frightened of? Do you know what I thought about this? My, my, my immediate reaction was he's... You know, Dominic Cummings famously got the common touch, as it were, and 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 he knows what the people you know how to boil things down to the simplest uh, message. And I thought, oh God, maybe that will penetrate. You know, pic- picture of Jeremy Corbyn dressed as a chicken is fairly. I mean, it's fairly. Uh, it does pierce through. But but then I thought about. It, I thought actually, you know what? I think. That feels to me like something that would have worked in the, in 2016 uh, as part of the Leave EU, the Leave campaign. Um, but I feel that I do think we've moved on. I do think the debate has moved on, and I think techniques that worked then, when people were sort of largely in the dark about the EU and, and these the issues in general, I do think people have changed. I think you know we've seen. I read some statistics about BBC Parliament has had the highest viewing figures it's ever had in its mm. entire it, it, existence. And that was um, just me. And that was just you <laughs> and everyone around this table. With all his coffees. Um, and people, I, you know, this is anecdotal, but people that I people have, that I know that have no interest in politics are suddenly obsessed with it and sort of watching BBC Parliament live uh, until 11 o'clock at night uh, with their kids. And I do think, I think people are, maybe this is me being optimistic, I think people are more savvy nowadays because they have to be. So I don't think... I, I think I don't think people like to be patronised, and I, I feel like that chicken stunt is is someone going, "Oh, people are thick; they'll they'll fall for this." And I I I, I would like to believe that that's not the case. For me, it was a misstep. It also feels weirdly like '90s The Sun retro, doesn't it? Don't, don't one, you one of their like hideous like, Photoshop jobs. Yeah, it's like it? from a different age. era. Yeah. It just feels really strange. Well, I, I said this on Twitter. I used to work at the Big Breakfast, yeah. and exactly, we did exactly that stunt in 2000, I think it was, and we doorstepped a politician with with one of our guys dressed in a chicken suit, and I was so mortified <laughs> because it's pathetic. It's childish. It's pathetic, and and yeah, and it says, and that's the thing. It's like even if it did work, at what cost? The dignity of the Conservative Party, which used to be a fairly sensible party, regardless of what else you thought about it, 
it's just a bit of it's a bit embarrassing now when you have people like James Cleverly mm. tweeting this utter oh, horseshit, mm. um, and you know they, they'll I think they'll feel the effect of that for a long time. Um, a number of cunning plans to frustrate the Ben Bill uh, regarding No Deal were floated, including but not limited to. We don't probably don't have time for all of the uh, <laughs> all of the wheezes. Oh. Declaring a state of emergency, which is a very normal thing to do, uh, just refusing to obey the law, passing a vote of no confidence in their own leader, Johnson resigning before he has to send the letter, and most cunning of all, send the letter along with another letter <laughs> saying, "I don't mean that letter. Please ignore." <laughs> But the, the government, like ministers, are still insisting that the government won't ask for an extension. So presumably at least one of these plans, or perhaps an even more special plan, um, is on the table. I don't... Ian, which... Are any of these... Do any of these sound conceivable? Because they all sound rather sort of drastic, i.e. resigning, going to jail. Um, do any of these sound like ways out for him? No. Um, so, I mean, the, the best one by far would be the no confidence vote in yourself, which, by the way, if you say that as a sentence, your best option now is to hold a no confidence vote in yourself. You realise the severity of the circumstances. I'm often holding a no confidence vote in myself. Because, <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, look, because if you were to do it, I mean, the damage you take is the fact that you have done it. And, and just how obvious that headline writes itself. You know, the Prime yeah, Minister yeah. literally has no confidence in himself. But you do make it almost impossible for Labour to keep on opposing what happens next because Labour's... You can't vote to have confidence in the government when you're the opposition. Like, even if you're not holding an election, you can't do that. You'd have to go along with that. But he would take such damage in the process. The others are just impossible. I mean... The, you know, the government cannot get itself emergency powers whenever it li doesn't like the look of a law. It actually has to have an emergency in order for that to take place, a civil emergency. The idea of sending a separate letter, again, is not very helpful because the law includes within it this idea of you're supposed to be following the law. You can't just try and like use a technicality to get out from it, like writing another letter going, didn't really mean it. So none of those things, they simply do not work. The only one that would work is a no-confidence vote, and that comes with pain attached. Elsewhere on the legal front, Dominic Grieve has demanded the government hand over the Yellow Hammer documents detailing problems with no deal and communications between ministers and civil servants about the motives <laughs> for proroguing. Although the government, I think, in a response to a question, basically admitted the motive for proroguing was all to do with Brexit. Well, it was in response anyway. to the petition. There was a right. petition on the government side to um, not to prorogue parliament which got something like a million yes, and a half petition, yeah. and the email that went out to everyone that basically um, signed that petition was we are leaving on the 31st of October <laughs> which is a really weird response to a petition not to prorogue parliament which you say has nothing to do with Brexit right you can't yeah they so, can't get yeah. the story straight so they, they sort of shot themselves in the foot but I'm interested in what Ian was saying um You've because never said that before. No, no, I say that all the time, just not in your presence, because <laughs> your head is big enough. Um, it, it is true that all those options are horrible for, for Boris Johnson, and the headlines do write themselves, but there is a problem there in that who's going to write those headlines? The Telegraph? Or you, you know, the no, Sun? No well, there yeah. is a real deficit. I mean... 
Boris Johnson, as far as I can see, could walk up to the Queen naked and punch her, and the headline in the Telegraph the next day would be Secret Corbyn Plan to Uninvent Electricity. I think that's definitely true. And so you're never going to get anywhere with... <coughs> that was very funny, by the way. <laughs> and just, sorry, just I, just, I can't build up with that. Yeah. Um, so I think you're never going to get anywhere, obviously, with The Express, with The Sun, with The Telegraph, and, and lots of the press. But I don't really think that the main battle takes place in those newspapers. And I think that, that that's mostly lost. And mm. anyone that would... Yeah, yeah. against the Tories, despite reading it, would do it whatever they write. The battle takes place mostly in broadcast, and, and especially in a way that we don't talk about enough, in local radio. You know, often BBC mm. local radio, in other words, where people are, you know, several shows, they're very susceptible to those messages, they have much more trust in what comes from there. And in there, I think it's very hard to present that in any other way, even if you go up to the top of the sort of Laura Kunzberg type of narrative yeah, you yeah. have with these things, of on the one hand this, on the one hand that. It's very hard to present the Prime Minister calling a vote in their confidence in himself in a way that doesn't sound spectacularly absurd. Mm. Mm. Um, Bridget, we keep being told uh, that Johnson is looking for a creative solution to the backstop, um, but outgoing Minister Amber Rudd, uh, who we'll get to later... Um, basically said this was this was nonsense. Does I mean, do you believe that there is any kind of negotiation going on, or is it just uh, is it just a pretense? No, I don't believe that there is any kind of real meaningful negotiation going on. I'd always believed that no deal would never happen under Theresa May. I thought it was just a a, a tactic, um, a scare tactic. Under Boris Johnson, I think the strategy has been deliberately to run down the clock to force us out without a deal or to get an election before that period in order that either the Conservatives secure a victory or alternatively we're just pushed over the cliff with, because the election date is moved, which has been you know, the reason that we haven't supported um, having an October election because there will be nothing to stop the date of that election being shifted after the point at which an election has been called. I think voters are pretty good at sussing out whether they believe the motives of politicians and what they're arguing for. And I think you look back to the 2017 general election where you had a prime minister going into the election saying um, a whole host of things about why that election was necessary and the voters decided actually they weren't entirely sure that the election was necessary, but also that the reasons given... In that the Prime Minister at that point, Theresa May, argued that she needed to have a strong negotiating hand to deal with Brexit. I mean, that was a Brexit election for all of about a week, and then we moved on to a whole, whole host of other things. I see no reason to believe that a general election now, in similar circumstances, wouldn't really be about Brexit in any meaningful sense, which I think it is right that we try and resolve the issues around Brexit, I believe, in the form of a referendum, before we then move on to a general election, because general elections are rarely about single issues, and they're rarely about what politicians want to make them about. I mean, there were a number of things that happened during that 2017 election campaign, not least, you know, the terrorist attacks that we suffered in this country that very quickly meant we were talking about a whole host of other issues, not just about Brexit. And we had it, you know, that general election was predicated on let's try and resolve Brexit. And it didn't do any of that. It, it didn't resolve Brexit. We've had a general election mm. since that referendum. So when Tory MPs will say you know, you're not respecting the mandate and, and so on. We have actually had a big electoral event after that referendum in 2016. Mm. It's, you know, it's a different parliament, a different set of people that did or didn't vote to trigger Article 15 have taken a whole host of decisions after 2017. It's different people mm. with a different mandate from their own constituents who believe that they have to do the right thing. And that, yes, you know, we look back to the 2016 referendum, camp, you know, referendum result. There's no ignoring it, but it's not the only thing that's happened since. 
That's very close to the Tom Watson view, isn't it? Uh, as he said today, that it needs to be a distinct thing that really happens before an election to unlock than having an election on normal election issues, if that makes sense. I think Tom's absolutely right, because, you know, in the course of a general election, I would want to talk about a whole host, all of the challenges that my community face, whether it's the fact that far too many people are still out of work, that, you know, I've seen a massive increase in the number of children in poverty, largely because of universal credit. Our transport infrastructure is chronic. I could go on and on Mm -hmm. about the challenges we face. And I'm just not convinced that we would fully resolve Brexit in those circumstances, nor am I convinced that we'd actually get to talk about all of the other problems we face as a country, which for me is the fundamental problem with Mm. Brexit. We're not going to talk about any of the big challenges we face as a country because Brexit's going to go on for at least the next decade and that means we can't solve child poverty or make sure that we're sorting out adult social care or making sure that we've got enough nurses in the NHS. All of that is going to just fall by the wayside as Brexit drags on and I think that's one of the key arguments that needs to be made in terms of trying to persuade people um, why we do need to just stay in the European Union and move on to talking about other things. I do understand that argument. I'm a bit concerned though by that, Tom, Watson idea because first off if you would have a referendum now before an election now this is arguable but frankly there isn't a mandate for it now what's arguable is whether you need that mandate and I'm not you, you one could argue that you don't but at the moment it's not there you know Labour didn't run under another election um, when it during the last uh, bigger part another referendum when it last had an election yeah yeah so even but then even putting that to one side the numbers aren't there in Parliament in order to A, get the referendum, or B, be able to pass the legislation on how you would hold the referendum without people being able to sort of sabotage it. So even if you get rid of the principal argument, you then have a practical argument. And I think by that stage, you sort of think, I, I don't see that that's a goer. I, I see that it could be a goer for changing the debate within the Labour Party to a better position. I think it works for that. But in terms of an actual proposition of having a referendum before another election, I, I just don't see how do, that works. Do you think are the numbers still not there, though? Because yeah. I, I look look at the last vote in which uh, the idea of a second referendum got the highest number of votes, although it wasn't the narrowest margin. And I add a number of those 21 um, Tory MPs who have been thrown out of the party and who were in the cabinet at the time and couldn't vote on the issue. And I'm not sure the arithmetic is still exactly the same. You might, at the furthest edges, be able to just about, and I don't think you would, but just about squeak through a proposition for it, to to do it. I think in order to pass legislation to get it through, it would be Mm. subject to, I, I can't see it surviving. I mostly think that those new votes, those rebel Tory MPs and the new sort of Labour MPs, actually are most dangerous in, in the push for a, for a deal. If anything comes back, when you look at what Neil Kinnock's mm. doing at the moment, yeah, yeah, yeah. That, so that's where I see the, the biggest movement in the Commons right now is people who might now support a deal if it came forward. Yeah. In terms of referendum, I just don't. I see very little chatter about it at the moment, and I think you need to have a, an election to unlock that option. Sure. Um, just to, finally, Johnson looked kind of pitiful next to Leo Varadkar, uh, <laughs> doing roughly his hair, doing these kind of bizarre sort of calisthenics. Like he wasn't in front of the camera. <laughs> and this could be his usual, just like, only me, shtick. Um, but he did seem to be sort of under quite a lot of, of pressure. And there seems to be this feeling that he's hired Dominic Cummings to be his attack dog. The attack dog is now mauling him. Um, and that he's basically being forced, somebody who basically likes to be liked. The whole thing about Boris Johnson is just like, you may not agree with everything, but I'm a good guy. And he's being made to do things which make him very much not a good guy and sort of (laughs) ending up sort of threatening to just like, maybe I'll go to jail for ignoring the law. Um, Do you think, Ingrid, that he has um, sort of become something of a sort of 
hostage to his uh, advisor. Well, that that was interesting. Yeah, that was when when he was standing next to. Um Leo Varadkar on, on, on the podium next to him and he was sort of doing this weird, yeah, like stretching of his chest and it wasn't... Do you know what? For me, that seemed like a classic macho manoeuvre. It's almost like I'm not really even listening, I'm not that bothered, I'm so unbothered by it that I've got time to do exercise. Um, in the same way, <laughs> just a complete lack of propriety, a lack of respect to the person that is standing next to you and talking. You're supposed to be actually listening to and, and sort of giving giving respect by, I don't know, maintaining eye contact or whatever. Um, and it reminded me of um, uh, Jacob Rees-Mogg in the House of Commons prostrating himself on the bench um, in, a wa- in a manner that I found genuinely, I mean, disgusting, actually. And I was talking to my dad last night um, and he's, he lives in Germany, he's German, and he's been watching everything that's been going on in, in li- live parliamentary television. They're showing it in Germany. He said every talk show at the moment, every every uh, mm. news item is, is about Brexit. People are as obsessed with it almost as we are. And he said, um, I said, do you have that in the House of Parliament? Is that behaviour that, that you would recognise? Would they do that in the Bundestag, for example? And he said, absolutely not. And and that is, it is embarrassing. What happened on Monday night? I could barely watch it. I mean, I watched all 25,000 hours of it, but I, I felt <laughs> sick because, because the behaviour, and again, it comes from that sort of not knowing not prizing where you are not understanding that the job, job you have is is incredibly important and you're very lucky to have it and it's it's a it's a, a you know a position of state and to behave in that way is, yeah. is absolutely disgusting and i'm embarrassed about it and so for me boris johnson all that sort of you know kerfuffle charming kerfuffle is despicable and i and i and i and i you know yet another reason why i resigned my membership of the toy party um because it, because it doesn't it shouldn't he's the leader of our country for god's sakes stand next to the man and stand up stand up straight and I, and i think in in a very real way that's their undoing actually because yeah. they have put all their eggs in one electoral basket they've said it doesn't matter if we lose seats in london it doesn't matter if we lose seats in the south it doesn't matter if we lose seats in scotland because we're going to win those northern seats and let me tell you Jacob Rees-Mogg lying down like that yeah. will be the poster that goes up mm. in the north. And the fact that his brother resigned, people may not pay attention to the details, but there's something really deeply ingrained in, in northern Labour vo- voters that you can't trust the Tories. And you add on top of that Boris and the fact that not even his own family trusts him. And that sort of thing does have cut cut through. And I don't think they will convert enough traditional Labour voters over to their cause in order to make up for the the losses they will suffer in the South and in Scotland. They just won't do it. It's backfired. Por favor, deja mi ciudad. Fog me vale, Moshe de Holly. Merci de quitter ma ville. Per favore, lascia la mia città. Kérem, hagyja el a városomat. Per favore, lascia la mia città. That was some more polite requests. Please leave my town from listeners and Twitter followers. Now it's time for Gone in 60 Seconds, where one of our panel has a single Earth Minute to demolish a treasured article of faith from the other side. 
This week it's Alex's turn. Your lever argument is MPs are servants of the people and they should just do as they're told. Sorry, Bridget, this is not our wording. Can, but can I That's just lever's say, word. Can I just say that Bridget kind of covered it much better than I've written it down. So, anyway. Well, there you go. Maybe I'll, it'll take less than I'll a minute. Go. No, it won't. OK. <laughs> <laughs> right. There have been repeated accusations that this government is somehow stopped from implementing the programme it wants, variously by the EU, by MPs, by the Lords, by Romania civil service, by saboteurs, by evil judges, etc. Fundamentally, there is only one thing that stops this government from behaving as if it had a majority, and that is the fact that it failed to secure a majority at the 2017 election. Theresa May went to the people and said, give me the power to drive this through in the way I propose, and the people replied, no thanks. This election took place after the referendum, its supremacy is absolute. This is the most current and only relevant will of the people. A hung parliament is voters saying, we trust none of you absolutely. We are instructing you to compromise. The idea that her replacement, selected by a minute and representative sample, can just ignore that election, reach further back to 2016 and magically draw his instructions directly from a one-question advisory referendum is stupid, cynical and dangerous. Amazing. What was that? One minute. That was like 59 seconds. Nice. 15. Now, resignation watch. After we recorded last week's show, Joe Johnson walked out, reportedly reducing his brother to tears. Over the weekend, Amber Rudd finally realised that maybe she shouldn't have trusted Boris Johnson after all. Um, this is... Has that only been a week? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I know. It's amazing, right? This is the stuff that you would normally get in the dying days of a premiership. It's real kind of... It's like bunker period. Yeah, it is the dying stuff. <laughs> well, it is. <laughs> but they just happened to come five <laughs> days after it was born. <laughs> um, how much damage... Um, I mean, you mentioned the, the Joe Johnson thing, because I remember Ed Miller, you know, Ed Miliband, they were still, he never bothered yeah, me, yeah. Um, but people were still throwing at him, oh, you stabbed your own brother in the back. So obviously people have, like, brother's obviously a big thing in the British psyche here. Yeah. Um, and then Amber Rudd as well, who we kind of were kind of disappointed in. Uh, and then she kind of did a real sort of barn burner of a sort of an exit interview. <laughs> I, I um, mean, I think... How much damage has it caused? I think they may have, these people may have genuinely sat down with Johnson and he told them that my real objective is to get a deal and this is my strategy for doing it and they believed him and it became harder and harder to ignore the fact that in government they weren't doing anything towards a deal I mean it's just expectation crashing into reality it's nothing more nothing less well, the Tories are on a real blue streak because they've managed to jettison uh, their moderate wing, including Churchill's grandson and the actual Duke of Wellington. I know. <laughs> so weird. <laughs> and uh, are showing every sign of heading to the extremes. Um, so I wanted to ask, is there any political... I mean, we, are, we were asking this with the, with the independent group. Is there any political future um, for those ejected MPs? Do any of them have uh, the kind of personal brand or the right constituency, do you think, to to stand and win as an independent? Or are they all just gone? I mean, that's a question I, I have, actually. For example, if for the next election there is an election, how, how if they are going to select MPs, is every local Conservative association going to only select hardcore right-wing Tory MPs? Because presumably it's up to them who they select, no? So I don't know... They don't make great choices. Sure, Historically, but you know they have chosen some of the MPs that have left, um, so that not every Tory association is in agreement. I presume with with what's happening in at government level. So yeah, 
So I'm asking. That's the question I'm asking, basically. <laughs> but that's the how question much? I just. You can't just I'm ask sorry, the question sorry, again. What do you think, Bridget? Bridget I'm will have the inside skinny. I've just this. reworded exactly in the same way what you said because <laughs> it's a question I also have. Sorry, um, sorry, Bridget. Go on. No, my insights into the Conservative Party are a bit more limited, but <laughs> um, I think I think it's hard to know, and I think it will also depend on the constituencies in question. So, were um, someone who's been ejected from the Conservative Party to stand in a marginal seat? That could be the difference between Labour or the Conservatives win or, winning or losing that seat. So I think he might end up with that having that kind of impact. It's hard to know whether we're going through a period where party politics is being reset. We've had this before. I think there have been a number of false dawns in the run-up to 2017. It was you know, widely predicted that we, we'd seen the end of two-party politics and then we saw precisely the opposite mm. in 2017. That's not to say that that moment won't come again. Yeah, yeah. It, it's, it just feels so volatile. It's so hard to know where things will take us. And, you know, as you said, Ian, it's only been a week since um, since Amber Rudd uh, resigned. There have been so many events, I think, in the last year, but particularly the last six months, where so many of those norms have been eroded, where you know, where one of those events alone in normal times would have been enough to finish off a government or to tip things over the edge. You know, you had Esther McVeigh lying to Parliament more than once. Mm. She didn't actually, she wasn't actually forced to resign over that. She only resigned over the Brexit deal she didn't like. Mm. You know, you've had, it's almost hard to remember everything that's gone on in that time. And each individual event you would expect to be enough to finish off a government, yeah. but it hasn't been, and we just keep getting event after event. But I think it's corrosive, and I think the impact it has on the functioning of government and on the public perception of politics and on our institutions and our democracy, I think is is genuinely worrying. If you know cabinet ministers can lie to parliament and there can be no consequence, what does that mean for our democracy? And they're only pushed out. Nothing good. Uh, yeah, and so I don't know where I don't know where any of this this will take us. I, I I would imagine you know under a different leader, and it's not inconceivable that there's a way back for those people. Um, but it doesn't appear that there is any attempt to bring those people back. I think it was a big mistake for the Conservative Party to have done that. That's their decision. I'm not you know I'm not. They can they can do as as they choose. But I think they underestimated the scale of the rebellion. They thought they could contain it by threatening those people, and they found that actually those people were not prepared to be bullied. So whatever I might think about those people in terms of other policies they'll pursue, I would never disagree with MPs, you know, standing up and doing what they believe to be in the that, best interest of their country. That's what was so shocking. It was so Stalin-esque mm. <laughs> from the people who have been accusing the other side of being, you know, dirty Marxists this, this entire time. I I was shocked. There was one of those MPs was on, on uh, BBC News and they said that they suspended his entire staff from his constituency, one of whom was a, a local Tory councillor. So it was a real sort of, with no due process, nothing. They just literally sacked everyone that had gone against them and all their friends. Well, they, 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 it does remove their attack line, really, against Labour, which was quite potent up to that point. You know, talk of deselections. Oh, well, yeah. They, they... And it's just like... I mean, I think, I think Labour's done nothing approaching this kind of... Their single-mindedness in pursuing an exit uh, on the 31st of October... A no, a no deal is is completely pure now. I think, and that do you see the, like this morning on the, the was it the front of the Express? There was an extraordinary advert Farage reaching out to Boris Johnson that Farage, the yeah, Brexit yeah. Party, paid mm. for, saying uh, we'll do a deal with you. And and I think I've, I've heard this afternoon the Conservatives have rejected that out of hand, which suggests that they're going to go full no deal. 
in the manifesto for the next election. That's what I infer from that, because otherwise... Do you but, not think? But wasn't the pact based on them going no deal? Well, it is, but but I think they're not going... They don't want to be seen to be doing a deal with the Brexit party, so they have to, in order to not lose seats to the Brexit party, they will have to go no deal themselves without their help, as okay, it were. OK, so the pact included terms... And and that was the bit of it that wasn't on the front page. So it wasn't just, if you go for no deal, we'll stand back. The deal being offered was that if you support fully no deal, no other option, then we'll stand down for you in seats in the south and you pull back from seats in the north because the claim is that the Brexit party is is better uh, positioned to win them from Labour and then effectively preparing to go into a coalition between the Tories and the Brexit party. And that's why the Tories, I think, said no way is that happening. But I mean, you don't, they don't need to. This is the thing; they don't need to formalise it. This is what I don't get about this. I mean, it's all. This is all the theatre of it. But you don't actually need to formalise any of yeah. this stuff. Truth is, if if Brexit Party starts gunning hards at those seats, they're they're fundamentally right that those you know Northern Labour seats, if they are going to flick out to another party, it's not going to be the fucking Tories. It's it would be the Brexit Party. It's, it's got to be the anti-establishment message that you can capitalise on. So on that on that, I, like, I still feel what's their funding the in biggest... infrastructure though to no, to run I, I a huge think... national campaign. The oh, Brexit I, I, think, party. I do think they have funding for it and um, they have quite a lot of money i i do think that is the biggest threat right now is a functioning arrangement between the brexit party and the tory party that will not be a formal pact that will not be out like that but actually is just being canny about where you dedicate resources mm, okay and if the brexit party is gunning for places that the tory party can't attract th- that is probably right now the thing that concerns me more than anything else so change uk obviously that didn't pan out as hoped as they hoped. Um, but it did seem kind of like that they were in the in the sort of vanguard there. Heidi Allen's now saying she was ashamed to ever have been a Conservative. And actually, even though initially, I think it was, there was it started off with Labour MPs, wasn't it? They were the original independent group people, and then the Tories came. But it's the Tories that proved to be the most sort of prophetic there. Yeah. That's that's yeah. really the mass exodus. It's not been a mass exodus from, from Labour. Mm. But the thing is that these, the, the 21 rebel Tories, I mean, for a start... A, they're not really Remainers. Very few of them are Remainers. They're mostly people that want to deal. Dealers. Mm. Yeah, they're dealers. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of it about in the Conservative Party nowadays. <laughs> kind of do. Um, so, I mean, that, that puts them in quite an odd position with, with how you navigate. And, and that could change. You know, the, the, the momentum changes. And, and uh, I'm not suggesting that in his hearts of hearts, if, if, you know, Philip Hammond could have his ideal world or Rory Stewart, they would want to leave the EU. They wouldn't. But, but they're still people that fundamentally, in terms of what they want right now, they are Brexiters and they want a deal. They're just anti-no deal. And that makes the realignment quite difficult. And I, it also makes it difficult. And we talk about how they're going to do in an election. If we could include them in, you know, a Remainer, alliance that is saying well look everyone stands down about from this person in this seat then they'd probably have a really good chance as an independent but if they're still out there going i'm going to fight for a deal it's mm. impossible for a remain alliance to do that with them so a lot of it depends on on how their views may change over the weeks to come. and finally the lib dems seem to be kind of you know doors open um for <laughs> for, for any of these kind of uh, sort of exiting tory mps is there a danger that they could um they could sort of overdo that and have such a because of the the numbers that they've got in parliament and, and you know they're on course to getting as more MPs <laughs> who have changed sides than have actually been elected yeah, yeah, onto yeah. a Lib Dem platform. Is there a danger that that because they've swept in a lot of uh, of disillusioned Labour voters, um, Remainers particularly? Um, is there a danger that they'll just end up like with too many Tories? Will they? Will Joe Swinson at some point just go? 
No, not you. I think they have to be judicious in how many people they take in from either side, if that makes sense, and ballasting that with a centre. But I also think, you know, Joe Swinson is someone who worked in government with a lot of those people, has a probably a personal relationship with them, a working relationship with them already. So I would imagine she'd be in quite a good position to judge whether someone will try and break the Liberal Democrats from within or not. While we're on the subject of Conservative SKPs, the new series of our companion podcast on the House started last week, and they picked the right week for it. Every week, MPs Sam Jima and Philip Lee discuss the week in politics over a pint with guests and friendly rivals. There's a new episode every Friday, so make sure you subscribe to On the House on your favourite podcast app. From the first episode, here's now Lib Dem MP Philip Lee's pithy take on the events of last week. We have a chief of staff, or in effect a chief of staff, who, if he had a medical qualification, I would suggest he'd probably be best in a laboratory trying to work out the next new cancer drug. I'd have him as far away from patients as possible, because it's all very well being clever, drawing up algorithms and managing data, but if you forget to put into your algorithm emotion, human nature, understanding people and their motivations for being in Parliament, i tell you what you get you get this shit show and that's because this person he may be very clever but he doesn't understand people and their motivations for being in politics merci de bien vouloir quitter ma ville our special guest today is Labour MP for Houghton and Sunderland South, Bridget Phillipson. And Bridget, like uh, some of your colleagues, you're a, as a Remain MP in a Leave voting constituency. Um, how do you sort of get on with your constituents? Um, how do you sort of counter their criticisms? Because presumably there's, there's, you get quite a few of them. So in terms of my thinking on it, I've pretty like a lot of voters um, as well have been on a bit of a journey in understanding what I think about Brexit. So in 2016, I campaigned for Remain very strongly. We did a lot of campaigning in Sunderland for all the good it did us. Uh, but we did a lot of a lot of door knocking. Um, and then we had the result, which I thought was, you know, the wrong choice for the country, but I thought there was no getting away from the decision that had been taken. The 2017 general election then happened, and I think that, for me, that shifted a lot. And when it wasn't clear that... When it was clear that Theresa May wasn't willing to compromise, and it became increasingly clear that there wasn't a route to a deal that would bring Parliament together, and she made no efforts to try and achieve that. You know, the response I've had from my constituents, as you'd expect, has been mixed. But it's fair to say that the majority of people who voted for me in 2017 in Sunderland had voted Remain in 2016 um, in that referendum. The same is true of the vast majority of Labour-held seats in Mm. this country. Labour voters, by and large, voted Remain. So I hear from lots of angry people in my constituency. Some of them were Labour voters. I don't doubt that for one moment. A lot of them are not Labour voters and have never been Labour voters. In fact, many of them are... um, political opponents who make the most noise about some of these things. I think our responsibility as a party is to 
argue for a position which is consistent with our values that will make sure that there isn't harm done to the life chances of working people and it is my community that is going to be hit the hardest not just from an ordeal Brexit but frankly from any kind of Brexit because you know the deal that Theresa May had on the table would not have protected manufacturing jobs in the long run in my constituency it would have left us a lot worse off and my responsibility as an MP I think is to be clear about the consequences to my electors. Because obviously, the, you know, it's manufacturing region, cars particularly. Um, yeah, Nissan's factory in neighbouring Sunderland West has here announced it was ceasing production of the Infinity model there. Um, obviously, the, the, the spin on the other side is whenever there are job losses, they go, well, this isn't to do with Brexit, it's to do with larger things in the global economy or the car industry or whatever. Um, how much does that cut through to your constituents? Do you find that a lot of them um, do connect the job losses and the fear of future job losses to Brexit? So the impact of Brexit is already being felt in that, yes, there are wider factors in the automotive sector across the world, but the uncertainty around Brexit and even the deal that might have been secured was already causing um, investment to move elsewhere and was seeing a downturn in production. And the same is true in, in other um, kind of car manufacturing sites across the UK. That is starting, I think, to, to resonate with people. I think what also people will notice is the fact that the price of their weekly shop has gone up significantly. They're worried about the impact around medicines and availability in the event of a no-deal Brexit. And I think there's a there's a responsibility on politicians to communicate the impact of that in a way that is real to people's lives. You know, I don't want to just have a rerun of the 2016 kind of doomsaying, which frankly, without a message of hope running alongside of that, is not going to be persuasive in convincing people that actually remaining in the European Union is the right choice for them and the right choice for their families. But I also think there's a lot of misunderstanding that goes on in the media around what voters in places like Sunderland say and think and believe. You know, you would almost get the impression that every person in Sunderland is a flat cap wearing whippet owner who works in the mining industry um, from the vox pops that you sometimes get when journalists come and come on some kind of Brexit safari and wander around a town centre at 11 o'clock <laughs> on a Thursday. You will only ever get a certain kind of demographic when you do that. It is not necessarily representative and it was not northern voters in places like Sunderland that gave us Brexit. It was often southern voters in commuter belt, Surrey and mm. elsewhere who, you know, with every opportunity in life, thought that voting leave was the right choice. So I get pretty fed up of people in northern towns and cities getting the blame for Brexit and the sneering that often goes on, which is not only wrong, but I think is entirely counterproductive and will not persuade people that they, you know, are able to change their minds when presented with a very different set of circumstances. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Did you see the stuff that was released on, on Twitter today, just sort of highlighting again that actually the North should both more for Remain especially when, than the South if you take out London and so that whole idea that whole mm -hmm. which is a completely false idea yes it's quite irritating um, I imagine it's rather more irritating <laughs> than you. well you know and I'm someone that's from you know I'm from Sunderland I was born and brought up there and I have the great privilege to represent the place that I'm from and we are not all just one big unthinking mass of people who all believe mm. the same things think the same things mm. want the same things from life of course there is diversity as much in Sunderland as there is in Surrey and I think just to present the north as this one big kind of group of people that only think in one way I find massively frustrating and I just just think, but equally, I think there is a responsibility on those of us who want to make the case to not fall into that trap of 
blaming those people who, for good reason, voted to leave for the situation in which we find ourselves. So whenever I do any, whenever I've said anything around the impact on jobs on Nissan, I'll get lots of snide, unpleasant comments about turkeys and Christmas and well, you know, they should have known better and mm-hmm. or well, typical stupid, you know, voters. I mean, apart from that being deeply unpleasant when you're talking about people's jobs and livelihoods, how on earth are we ever going to persuade anybody that staying in the European Union is the right choice if we just tell them they were stupid, they were lied to, they should have known better? I tell you what, I don't like being told that I'm stupid or that I got things wrong and I should have known better. Why on earth would anybody else think that too? And there's far too much of that and, you know, I think it's, you know, just totally unhelpful. Um, But on the subject, I suppose, of how much voters sort of do understand, there was a shocking... There's sort of two aspects to no deal. One, of course, is the the consequences and warnings about the consequences. Um, But the other is actually what it means, like... Uh, you know, what comes after no deal uh, in terms of, you know, further kind of negotiations, the next stage of Brexit. Um, And there was quite an alarming poll this week that showed that a majority, um, I think it was like 60% of Tory voters, 55% of Leave voters, believed that no deal would resolve Brexit and we could then move on, which is obviously not true. Um, When it comes to talking to people about no deal, um, on both those fronts, is is there a lot of sort of misunderstanding? Because that kind of get on with it, clean break is the way the Farage describes it when of course that's not what it is but is that is that hard to sort of get through to people is it hard to push back against this idea that it's just sort of slices the Gordian knot and you're done I think there is a responsibility to try and convey and communicate in real terms what this will mean for people's lives but I think there's also you know the big challenge of explaining that even if Theresa May's deal had gone through Parliament we still would be talking about Brexit for another decade because we hadn't resolved any of the big challenges that we face around our future trading relationship. All of we'd kicked, We were kicking much of it down the road. So for those people who say, let's just get it done, we want it over, even if Parliament had voted for a deal, that wasn't going to happen. We were still going to be talking about it for a very, very long time, which is why I think any future referendum campaign has to not just be about you know, the, the positive case for staying in Europe, but also how do we want to spend the next decade as a country? Do we want to spend the next decade sorting out the NHS, dealing with all the demographic challenges we face and sorting social care, having a you know, social security system that's fit for purpose and that actually allows people to live dignified lives? Or do we want to spend all of this time talking about the paperwork at the border, tariffs on cars, you know, all of these big intractable problems? And I think a lot of voters would actually be rather got on and dealt with the big problems we face as a country and don't want to spend the next decade talking about Brexit. Well, that, I suppose, brings us to the, the Lib Dems' latest sort of idea, yeah. with, with, which is the kind of... It's, it's the sort of the, the Gordian knot solution in the other direction, which is just revoke, which sort of outflanks, I think, anything um, that Labour could reasonably promise. Is that... Um, do you see that as a, as a threat? That's certainly going to appeal to a number of Remain... Remain voters, and that's that's a kind of that's an offer that Labour cannot beat because Revoke is like the ultimate. It's the Remainer dream. Do you think that? Do you think that really sort of changes things? I think it's wrong. I think it's fundamentally anti-democratic. And if we want to stay in Europe, we've got to make the argument for it and win. So it has to be the referendum. It, ha- it has to be. We have to ask the people. We have to seek their endorsement for that. Revoking because we didn't like the outcome in 2016 is just typifies everything, I think, that has been said about people that have been arguing against the initial decision. I think we've got to make the argument and win it this time. This sounds like a trap, but is anybody else... Can they, can is anybody yeah. in this room <laughs> in favour of, uh, of this spicy revoke offer? OK, so... 
revoking Article 50 is a mechanism, and as a mechanism it has huge advantages. So revoking Article 50 need not be accompanied with a pledge to just ignore the people who voted Brexit. It could be revoking Article 50 and then holding, you know, people's assemblies to find out how we go forward, promising another referendum in five years' time once we've got actually a structured way of how we get out of it. But it does give the country a chance to breathe because I increasingly feel that we've been breathless now for three years. We've been doing nothing else for three years. And if we continue to do this for another five, seven, ten years, which we will, even with no deal, um, I, I, I think things will begin to fray a lot more seriously around the, ed- the edges. So I think that's the advantage of Revoke for me. It gives everyone a, a chance to just inhale a bit of oxygen and come back to this with a calm and clear mind, say, in six months' time or a year's time. Do you think that will ever... Is that what they're pledging, though, the Lib Dems? I don't uh, know if that's, that's what they're that's pledging. What I mean. It's what I'm... I, the idea that we what would I'm pledging. open that... Vote Andreu. We, but, yeah, the idea of revoking then going, we're going to willingly open the can of worms again in five years' time. I don't know which government well, would do that. I don't well, know we'll, we'll, pledge to I suppose do that. when we do the Lib Dem conference thing, we can... You can ask them. We can ask them. Yeah. Well, Norway um, did that, for instance, the other way around. So when they had a vote to see whether people wanted to enter the EU, which was a 52-48 result, they didn't say, OK, you lost by now. They said, OK, so it was 52-48 against joining the EU, so let's strike a deal with the EU over the next five years that represents that 52-48 bargain. And that's what I think is actually the solution to this. We'll need to get the Norwegian back yeah. <laughs> to help us out of that. Um, the Br- Norwegian. Yeah. Norwegian. Yeah. sounds like it's down there. <laughs> <laughs> you wouldn't believe it. It's the new Martin Scorsese film. <laughs> Um, Bridget, Emily Thornbury was kind of uh, mocked for for explaining Labour's Brexit position on Question Time, which was sort of negotiate a better deal and then campaign against it. Now, that's not Emily Thornbury's fault, because that that is the sort of the official Labour position. If the Tories are preparing to be just like, you know, with a really clear message, we're leaving, come what may, no deal, whatever, is your party's position still too confusing... um, to convey to voters? Does it does it need to go further? Does it still need to be simplified before you could go into an election? You would need to have a credible leave option that would be on the ballot paper in any referendum. So I don't think there's anything wrong with saying that. Now, and I would rather that leave option were a better leave option than, say, no deal. I would absolutely seek to avoid having no deal on the ballot paper because I think that would be a rerun of 2016, kind of a, a vague kind of choice. So mm. I think it's right that you would have the two options. I think what the Lib Party needs to be much clearer about, and I've been arguing for, is that in the event that that happened, we would be campaigning for Remain because there is no deal that can match the deal that we have now as members of the European Union. And I think that, you know, going back to to revocation, I think the only circumstances in which you would seek to do that would be in the event of a genuine no-deal 
scenario and that's what we've had votes on in Parliament before and right. I've supported that. If you had a genuine situation of no deal then I think revocation might be all that's available to you but I think you would certainly want a longer extension. I don't just want another three months and another three, you know, I think there was talk this week that we might be looking at, the French were suggesting there might be a two year extension. I think a longer period of time to have a conversation about what we want to get out of Brexit and to put that to the people would be much better than ending up back at the end of January or whenever it yeah, might be. It's the same effect of what We're I'm just on a constant about, treadmill. But does that mean that the position is going to be necessarily confusing that actually what, what Emily Thornberry was saying is is the truth. It's just that if Labour was in, was in power, they would negotiate a deal, but then they would still campaign for Remain against their own deal because there had to be a credible option. So it was the thing that she was being sort of te- teased for on social media actually the sort of the, uh, the the only workable way as you see it. I think you do need a credible leave option. We would seek to negotiate a different, you know, you would seek to change, I imagine, the political declaration in particular. There is, but I mean, all of this is entirely hypothetical in that we are not currently having a general election. We may well do in weeks ahead. That would be in the event we've had an election and we've had a Labour government that would seek to put that um, to the people in the form of a referendum. And as I say, it would need to be a credible leave option. I don't just want us to be having a conversation around what no deal might or might not mean or remain versus leave. We need to be clear about what that option would involve. And it may be a slightly improved version of what Theresa May had negotiated. But even if that were the case, I cannot imagine the Labour Party would, you know, the vast majority of us would campaign for anything other than the deal we have now as members of the European Union. So are you are you braced for an election before the end of the year? I don't know. Um, I'm prepared for one, I think, we've, but we've all been there. We've all, it, it doesn't seem quite so terrible this time around, given that we had had a genuinely snap general election mm. in 2017. So, you know, many of us have, have been around that once already. I, As time draws on, I think if we haven't, if we don't get an election in, you know, once Parliament returns later on in October, I think we're running out of road this year for an election. Um, which I know goes against the grain of what most people are currently arguing, and I could be completely wrong on this, but as time draws on, I'm just not convinced there'll be a great clamour for a December election, and I'm not convinced there's a great clamour amongst the public for an election. Um, you know, I would. There is nothing I would rather than to have the opportunity to kick out this government, but I think resolving Brexit as an issue is the foremost challenge that we face. Thank you. And that's the end of the show, which means the Brexit time capsule container of everything we will need or miss if we ever leave the EU. Bridget, as our guest this week, uh, what would you put into it? So all of the best things I'm told have already been taken, so this is a bit, <laughs> a bit difficult. Um, it's very big capsule. Including Kate, Kate Harry. Harry. <laughs> but in the, in the spirit of the need to seek to persuade people to change their mind, um, I'm going to try to turn it on its head and say that I think we should put in there... Um, EU berries and EU flags on marches around staying in the European Union because I'm not sure that it isn't particularly helpful in seeking to persuade the people that that need to change their minds next time around that we just need to all wave EU flags and wear EU berries and be convinced of our own self-righteousness um, and that will be persuasive. So I think we should ban those flags from marches and we should talk a lot more about um, the kind of country that we want to build. Fair enough. Well, you can. That Kate Hurry would love I'll take that. Take my EU beret off. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> slip, it, slip it under no, the table. No, come Let's, on, we're saving <laughs> them for later. Is that, is that tattoo removable? Oh, that's awkward. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Bridget. We've had a lot of different languages on the show this week, but we are closing with something other than "Please leave my town." Here's Alexis Armstrong with some French. Le Brexit, c'est le remplacement d'une identité dont on est fier 
par une idée qu'on ne veut guère. That means Brexit replaces an identity of which we are proud with an idea that we don't want. Don't forget to send us your foreign language clips to info at romaniacs.com. Keep them short and concise and record them somewhere quiet. That's the show. Thanks, Ian, Alex and Ingrid. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I've got a fucking goodie bag. <laughs> Drive safely. <laughs> and thanks to our guest, Bridget Phillipson. Thanks very much. And stay tuned for a bonus segment in which... David Allen Green comes in to explain to us what exactly is going on with the Scottish court and prorogation. It's time for our theme tune by Corner Shop. It's called Demon is a Monster and you can get a free download at ampleplay.co.uk. Now let's thank our latest Patreon backers. Hello and thanks from me to Catherine Ahmad, Griff Rick, Chris Brown, David Davies, yes, David Davies, Tony, Paul Speed, Charles Newman, Simon Whittle, Gavin Thirlwall and Andrew Purcell. Und uh, vielen Dank, ihr liebe Süßen, an Simon Upstall, John Chang, Kate Z, 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 I'm American apparently, Tim Marriott, Martin McGowan, Disky, James Forrest, David Soulsby, Richard Folsom and Andrew Perkin. And thanks for me to Alison Lacey, Jay Anderson, Stephen Dowell, Liz Bailey, John Bird, Simon, James Whitworth, Alexi Janssen, Arthur Case and Taryn Langford. See you next week. Romaniacs was presented by Dorian Linsky with Ingrid Oliver, Ian Dunt and Alex Andre. Audio production was by me, Alex Reese, and the producer was Andrew Harrison. Romaniacs is a Podmasters production.